church, guys. Glad you guys braved the snow. We're going to have a little party after church, clean each other's cars off as we get out of here. It's going to be fun. And then we're all going to go sledding. Good? Okay. Um, good. Okay. <laughs> Here's a, we, we're continuing this, this series through the, the book of Acts, Okay. And as we've kind of been going, last week we got to this section where like, God is continuing to make it more clear and more clear through all these different ways that, that even though the gospel kind of started with Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, he's answering all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he's kind of answering all these things that God has been doing in the history of Israel, the thing that God is making clear week after week is that the gospel is actually for everyone. It's for the whole world. It's for every race, every ethnicity, every part of the world that actually this thing is meant to actually go to every single corner of the earth. The gospel's for everyone. And so the thing we get this week is actually there's this new church going to be started called the Church in Antioch, this city, um, where it's kind of the first church where this idea that the gospel is for everyone starts to really take hold. And actually, this church we're going to look at today, it's this going to be the new church that's going to be started in, in Acts 11. It's going to kind of be like the model and the framework for the church kind of moving forward in the rest of the book of Acts. And honestly, kind of for the rest of the history of Christianity, we look back and we say this church in Antioch is the thing. It was, it was the church in Jerusalem that kind of started this, but actually the church in Antioch becomes this kind of secondary hub that actually the gospel starts to spread from to the very ends of the earth. So we've got a Bible, Acts 11, and we're going to start in verse 19. Now this is, this is what it says. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And it is in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, now there's two stories happening here. Okay, the first one is the story of Antioch. And what's going to happen in chapter 12 is going to be this kind of story that's happening at the same time that Luke's going to tell us. And so next week, we're going to cover chapter 12. But I want you to skip to the very end of chapter 12, okay? And I want you to see what happens after Paul and Barnabas go and they take this gift of money to the church in Jerusalem and they come back. This is the last verse of 12, 25. It says, And Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And we'll continue in chapter 13. Now there were in the church Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Okay, so this, this, this is kind of pushing us forward. We're going to get into Paul's first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas are going to try to take the gospel to all these different cities around the Roman Empire. And we're going to keep reading about that, but I want to just kind of focus on this city and this church, Antioch, okay? Now, Antioch is an interesting city, okay? It's kind of one of the most interesting cities where the gospel has landed in so far because this is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's vast. It is about half a million people. It's this massive, sprawling city with competing cultures and philosophies and, and ideas of life. And as these persecuted Christians, they flee to this city, they, they start to share the gospel with everyone there, right? Kind of originally, some people are just sharing with the Jews because these are kind of maybe the most likely people to believe in Jesus because he's the Jewish Messiah after all. But there's some people who go and they go, no, the gospel's for everyone. We are going to share this Jesus with everyone. And it says that the hand of the Lord is with them. And a great number of people turned to the Lord. They believed in Jesus. And this church in Antioch, it is an incredibly diverse group of people. I want you to kind of just real quick look at this in chapter uh, 13. There's this list of names of the leaders. And it says, now they're in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers. And the first one they list is Barnabas, okay? Now Barnabas is really interesting because he's a Levite, which means he's kind of from kind of the royal line of priests in Israel. So he kind of has this kind of holy priest lineage thing going on, but he's also a Naples, uh, 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 Naples. He's a native of Cyprus. Okay, I, can, I did that. I combined that two words. Okay, he's a Naples. Okay. Native of Cyprus, but he's, he's from Cyprus, so he's from this kind of like this island, and he has this kind of his own kind of background going on. But then there's Simeon. And then Simeon has this nickname that's Niger, okay? Sometimes we say Niger, but the, the way you actually pronounce this is, is Niger. And, and so this is actually where we get kind of this, this word today that we don't use, okay? And so this, this word, literally in the Latin, it means like having a black complexion, okay? So one of the things that's really interesting about this church is that there's like this diversity that's happening here, okay? And so just so you know, like this, this word, like in this day, in this context, it doesn't have the connotations that that word has today. Okay, this is before the baggage of slavery. This is before the evils and, and, and um, yeah, of, of American slavery and colonization, those kinds of things. And so this is like back in the day where you have these competing cultures. Okay? And so there's all, these different, there's all these different people. There's white people. There's black people. And this dude apparently is black enough that that's his name. Okay? They just call him. This dude's name is Black. All right? That's his nickname. Next guy, Lucius of Cyrene, also another black guy. He's from Africa, okay? He's a North African guy. And the reason it's listing all these things is so that we would kind of understand that this church is like, is totally unique in the history of the world. The next guy, his name is Menaean. He's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, okay? This dude's wealthy. He's like upper crust. He is like the highest social strata. The next guy, Saul, Roman citizen by birth. He's Jewish, but he isn't just Jewish, he's a Pharisee. So he's like this really intense rule follower. He was a persecutor of the church, eventually turned missionary. These leaders of the church, unbelievably diverse group of people, okay? And what we might be tempted to think about as we're kind of like looking at this group, we might be saying, well, yeah, this is like a super diverse city. This is Antioch. Like there's tons of different cultures that are kind of slamming together here. Of course, this group is diverse. It represents the city. No, it didn't. 
okay? You did not have communities like this of people from different groups. You didn't have that existing in this part of the world at this time. No, people have always sequestered themselves off, right, into different tribes and different factions and groups of people like them, right? Rich people hang out with rich people. Jews spent time with Jews. And people from North Africa, when they moved into a city like this, they found other people from their culture, But the church was the first community. It was the very first group, literally within the history of the world, where people of any background, any history, any story could come in and find a home. This wasn't just a group of people who was getting something done. This was a family. Listen, there were no other round tables like this. Masters didn't share the dinner table with their house servants. Rich elites, they didn't share relationship with people at the bottom rung of society. Different cultures, they didn't identify with other people of other cultures, but in the church, they did. In the church, they did. There's no movement in the history of the world that is more multicultural, more inclusive, and more diverse than Christianity, period. And even though sometimes in the church in America, we get this wrong, historically, this has been true. And it's actually not a disputed point for people who've studied history. From this point forward, this will be one of the defining marks of the church, radical diversity in the kind of way the world had never seen. And actually, we live in the aftermath of that. Right, Madison, this kind of diverse city, America, this diverse culture, all these things slamming together, people who don't look like each other sitting at the same table together and sharing fellowship, that is a result of Christianity. And as the world looks in on this church, this diverse group of people with different stories, different interests, personalities, different cultures, they come to the conclusion that there is nothing that binds these people together There's nothing about them that unites them except one thing, Christ. Christ. And so the rest of the world, they look at them and they call them Christians. Christ people. And the idea in the original language is is literally, it's like to belong to someone. It's like this idea of ownership. And actually it was originally meant as like a derogatory term. But these people, they latched onto it. And they said, yes, that's right. That is who we are. We are those whose fundamental identity in the world is that we belong to Christ. He owns us. He is our master. We follow him. And this isn't the point of the sermon today, but I just want you to think about this. The name Christian, that name, that title, that that term that the world has kind of given us, and we have said, yes, we are Christians It implies that you have surrendered your whole life under Jesus. It implies that you are not your own anymore, but you have actually chosen to identify yourself primarily and ultimately as his possession. What this means is that you can't call yourself a Christian if you weigh the teaching and commands of Jesus kind of for yourself, kind of figuring out what you will follow and what you will reject. That's not following Jesus That's not submitting yourself under him as king. That's following yourself. But these Christians, they have chosen to follow Jesus. 
They said we belong to him. We submit our lives under him. We define ourselves by him. We are Christians. And the church back in Jerusalem, they hear about this new church. And they're like, what is happening in Antioch? Because it's really awesome what's happening. And it's starting to cause an uproar in the city. And so they hear about it. And so they send this guy named Barnabas, okay? He's like a teacher. He's kind of one of the people who's like helping build the church. And so they send him there. And Barnabas comes and he sees all that's happening. It says that he sees the grace of God and he's glad. And this is what he says to the church. This is like his exhortation, his message for them. This is what it says in verse 23. It says, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Purpose. This is his exhortation to them. This church is exploding with growth. It's it, with growth. It's the exciting thing in town. It's the hottest thing in town. There'd never been anything like this before in the city, and there'd never been anything like this before in any of their lives. And Barnabas's message for them is: remain faithful to the Lord with this kind of steadfast purpose. I've been reading this book, and, and it's, it's it's a book by Eugene Peterson, and it's it's on the the Psalms of Ascent, kind of some of the Psalms like in the 100s. And, and he says this thing. He says, it's not hard to get someone excited about something for a season of life, right? Maybe four years. He's like, it's not hard to get anyone excited about one thing for four years, right? You can have kind of this extremely attractional ministry. We got great music. You've kind of got this party going on. And you can actually get almost anyone to be excited about something for four years, But what's really hard to do is to get someone to apprentice themselves of following Jesus and pursuing holiness for 40. He's saying there's a lot of people in America that will follow Jesus for four years. A lot of people who will become really excited and passionate about this this idea of this, this man Jesus and following him for a season. But what's really hard is to actually follow him consistently, faithfully, with steadfast purpose for 40, 50, 60, the rest of your life. And this, he defines discipleship like this. It's actually the title of the book. It's just, he says, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And this is exactly what Barnabas is saying, right? He's saying that following Jesus, it isn't like really this decision that you make, but if you want to define it more accurately, following Jesus is a commitment that you keep. Because what defines someone as a Christian, what defines someone as a person who actually belongs to Christ is not about whether they start out on this narrow path of following Jesus, but what defines someone as a Christian is whether they actually end up following that path to the very end. One of the reasons that the path of Jesus is so narrow, right? Jesus talks about that. He says, like, wide is the way that leads to destruction, but the way to eternal life is narrow and it's difficult. And one of the reasons it's so narrow is because it is long. It's a long path. It's not going out with your family and putting the stroller in the van and going for a quick day hike. No. It's like the Pacific Crest Trail. Day after day, week after week, month after month continuing to walk this path. It isn't a bike ride, but it is a decision that you are going to go from here all the way to there, and you don't stop pedaling, and you don't stop until you get there. It's a long trip. By the way, 
Did you guys know Rob Warren rode a bicycle across America? Did you know that? I didn't. This came up casually in conversation the other day, okay? He just casually was like, hey, I did this thing. I was like, he's like, I think this happened when I was riding my bike across America. I was like, what? Like, you just did that? And I didn't, that wasn't the first thing you told me about yourself? Like, gosh, he's a man of many secrets, guys. And as I find them out, I will continue to tell you them, okay? But anyway, <laughs> rode his bike across America. That blows my mind, okay? And I cannot picture him in a full cycling outfit. No matter what I do, I can't <laughs> picture that, okay? All I picture is him in his jean jacket, like riding a bike, just <laughs> determined all the way across America. I don't know, okay? Anyway, okay, I'm sorry. That's not supposed, I'm not supposed to say that. Anyway, here we go. Okay. Here's, what, here's what Barnabas is saying, and here's, here's what's honestly just true. True about following Jesus is this. What matters is not that you're filled with passion and excitement for Jesus for a season, but what actually matters in your life as a Christian is whether you follow him faithfully with steadfast purpose for the rest of your life. And there's this really big question. Right? The question for these people, as Barnabas tells them that, the first thing out of the gate, remain faithful. And a question for us as we hear this, how do we become these people? Like, how do we become these people who remain faithful with, not just faithfulness, but like steadfast purpose? That's a strong phrase. How do we become people who are as devoted and passionate to Christ 30 years into our walk with him as we were the very first day we met him? Well, as the story continues, I think Luke actually gives us a window into the heart of this church, and I actually think that this church gives us like a model of like, how do we become these kind of people, okay? So three things that mark this church, and are actually the very same things that kind of we hope mark the church of Doxa as well. And so just the way that they gather, the way they give, and the way they go, okay? The first thing, the way that they gather, okay? What is the first thing that Barnabas does when he sees what God is doing after he sees the grace of God in the lives of these believers, he sees the grace is all over this group. What's the first thing he does? Verse 25, I want you to look. Look at this. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, right? Saul, the, the apostle Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a full year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this, these people, right, they have the gospel, they have put their faith in Jesus. They are saved. And the very first thing that Barnabas does after kind of this is happening is he says, I need to go and get reinforcements. I need to go to the, on this long journey down to Tarsus. I need to find this dude named Apostle Paul, who's another teacher, and I need to bring him to help spend time with these people. Why? Because they're, they're already saved. Like it's a church. They are Christians. Why does he need to go and get the Apostle Paul to help teach these people. Well, it's because following Jesus isn't just about getting people saved. Jesus saves you so that you can know God. So that you can know God. If you've ever wondered what the purpose of your life is, this is it. It is actually to know, not in a shallow way, but in an intimate, deep, real way, to know the one who created you. And to be able to respond with worship of him, to know God, not in an abstract way, but to, to know him, to grow in your knowledge of him, to, to know his story, to know his character, to know his personality, to know his grace, what his grace looks like in the world, to know his power, to know his goodness, 
What has he done in the world and how do those things reveal himself to us? And what will he do in the future? What has he promised to us? And how has he actually answered his promises in the past? What does his voice sound like? What things in this world reflect his character? Guys, it's, it, it, it's crazy when you think about it. Because if God had not broken into our world and he had not spoken to us and intentionally revealed himself, made himself known, we could have zero knowledge of him. None. The infinite kind of outside of the created world, God who made it, he is not knowable by us based off of our own intellectual analysis of the world. No, we know about him because he has revealed himself to us. And if he had not filled the world with evidence of his goodness and glory, we wouldn't even be able to seek after him. But God has revealed himself to humanity. We are the characters in the story that God has written. And for some inexplicable reason, the author has chosen to reveal himself and his reality to us. He walked and he talked with our very first parents. And even after our rebellion against him, he broke into our world and he joined himself once again to our ancestors. And he has incarnated himself into the world as the person Jesus Christ. And all of this is so that we would have an opportunity to know him, the eternal one, the one with no beginning and no end, the one who spoke the stars into existence and knows them by name, the one whose voice shakes the waters and whose just breath forms galaxies, the one whose presence is filled with these undying creatures whose entire existence is about seeing and declaring the glory of God, the one who lives before them, the one whom angels of fire and light, they must shield their eyes and their feet because the holiness, the brightness, the beauty of the one whose presence they exist before is too bright for them. The creator and sustainer of all things You can know him. You can know him. He's invited us to lift up our eyes and look at him, to study him, to know his story, to know what he is like, to learn to recognize the sound of his voice. Is this the steadfast purpose of your life? Are we people who have given ourselves to the faithful, steadfast purpose of growing in our knowledge of God? And this is a really hard question to sit under because there is no question that this is what Jesus died for. No question about that. The question that remains is whether this is actually what we are living for or not. And I think one of the great failures of the church in America today, one of the great failures of my life and the lives of the people that I know is that largely we have abandoned this invitation and calling in our lives. Because we have more access to God, we have more opportunity to enter into his story, to hear his voice than any generation of humanity that has ever existed before us. It is unbelievable how much access we have to knowledge of God. We we can have the Bible on our phones like when it's too dark to read it, we can open up a phone and, it, and we can have our phone read the words of God to us. 
And yet compared to most of the generations of Christians, Christians who have come before us, we know almost nothing of God. We're so malnourished in our understanding of God. We know so little of his story. We know so little of what he has done in the world. Most of us in the room, we've, we've never read the whole Bible. And, and many of us in the room, if we're, just, if we're totally honest, we actually know more about the stories of characters that are in The Bachelor or The Office than we know about the story of God. Like when we, someone would ask us, like, tell me the story of God, we'd have like this much to say. And if someone was like, tell me what you think Creed's backstory is, you'd be like, well, I think it might be this, right? And it's a joke, okay? Because no one knows anything about Creed from the office, okay? <laughs> but I'm serious though, right? Like, we're endlessly fascinated with things in the world. The question is whether we're endlessly fascinated with God. And I see these same things in my life. Like, I can see the months and the years that I've spent learning and reading and growing in knowledge about something in this world while my knowledge of God went largely unpursued, right? I can remember I spent mornings and evenings and nights like reading biographies of great photographers and learning every aspect of like lighting and framing and lenses and how different film stocks react to different skin tones, right? I can remember when I was so into cars, I remember learning almost everything you could possibly know about cars I would never be able to afford, let alone even drive, right? How much horsepower? How much pounds of downforce? How do they spin this carbon fiber to give it this kind of tensile strength? Architecture, design, Coffee, house remodeling, climbing, mountaineering. I am endlessly fascinated by the world. The question is whether I am endlessly fascinated by the God who made all of that. Whether I'm endlessly fascinated by knowing him. And there's been a lot of times in my life where I would say the answer to that is not really. Not really. I'm a very distracted person. But right now, this is what I'm doing. I wake up around 5.15 a.m. I know that many of you wake up way earlier, okay? I know. I, Rob's already done working out by this time of the day, okay? <laughs> but for me, this is like really, really early, okay? The sun thinks so too. It's not up for at least a couple more hours, okay? I wake up at 5.15 a.m. And I open my Bible because it is the only time that I know it will happen. 6.30 Silas is going to wake up. It's not going to happen after that. I'm not going to have time to pursue God after that point in the day. I've learned this about myself. It's taken me a really long time to learn it, but I've learned it. And so I wake up and I open my Bible and I read it and I try to memorize it and I, and I pray and I spend time trying to pursue the God who's created me and learn more about who he is and what he's done and what he's doing in my life. I'm reading through another systematic theology right now, okay? It is a thick, thick book. And honestly, at 5 a.m., sometimes way too thick, okay? But it's helping me know God. Like, I'm telling you guys, this is like the most unnatural thing in the world for me. I am not a morning person. This is a struggle. But I do this because I must know God. I must. I have to. I have a master's degree in theology, I spent 12 years of my life intensely reading and studying and learning more of who God is, and I honestly feel like I, I've, I know him almost none at all. It feels like I've spent 12 years like standing at the edge of a shore, like just slowly putting my foot in the water. And like that's all I've got. 
I'm like looking out at who God is and I'm like, there's so much. You are vast and incredible and infinite and you are inviting me to come deeper. And I'm like, I've worked pretty hard at this and there's so much more. But every day I'm, I'm trying to keep going. I'm trying to keep pressing in. And guys, I don't do this because I am in ministry. I don't do this because I am on staff at a church. I do this because I am a Christian. I do this because I want to know God. It is the great ambition of my life. At least it's supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be, but I'm a very distracted person. I struggle with discipline. I struggle with commitment. I'm just like you guys in all these ways. And that's why we, we need the gathering of God's people in our life. This is why we need the gathering, because this is what we do when we gather together. We gather together so that as a group of people, together we might link arms together and grow in our knowledge of God. That we might see more of him, we might hear his voice, we might come to know more of what he has done and what one day he will do, because all of us see something in God that others don't. And other people see something in God that we don't. And when we come together, we don't, when we don't cease meeting together as it's the habit of some, but we actually come together as the family of God to know God and to respond in worship, we're coming to know him more. What we're doing is we are being Christians. Because this is what Christians do. This is what Christians do. We gather together so that we can grow together, so that together we can come to know more and more of the one who made us his. So that marked the church in Antioch, and that has to mark Doxa Church the way they gather, the way they grow. But the second thing I want you to see, and these next two are really fast, okay, but I, just want, I want us to just see this so we don't move past it. The second thing is the way they give. Guys, look at verse 27 in chapter, chapter 11. It's so cool. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. And he said this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one of them according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Are they here with this famine? And they say, hey, this, this, these group of Christians, this church is going to need help. We are going to sacrifice our money. We're going to put it in a big pile. And we're going to give it to these two men to take it, them as, to take it there as a gift so this church can be blessed. Because there's so much you could say about this. There's this like uniting, joining things of like the Gentile and Jewish church. There's a ton of like theological significance. But I just want us to see this, that one of the defining marks of what made these people Christians is the way that they used their money. They gave generously to the kingdom of God. Because one of the easiest ways to see what you really value in life is just to look at your bank account. Right, the way that you spend your money, it actually gives you a window into your heart and the things that you truly value. And so one of the reasons the world looks at these people and the world calls them Christians is because even their, their money, like their treasure had come under the authority and under the submission of Christ. And they were, they were seeing that even like the way you use their, your money, like even that is Christian, uniquely Christian. But it's more than this. Because the way that we spend our money the way that we think about our money is actually one of the things that will determine whether we start out on the narrow road or whether we walk it to the end. 
And this isn't about like buying our salvation. This is nothing about like adding any kind of value to what Jesus has done for us. No, but it is about directing and shaping our hearts towards the thing that God says have value. Jesus says it just like really simply. He says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, look at what he says. This is what Jesus says exactly. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says that our hearts are shaped by how we use our money. And the things that we value with our treasure, they shape the things that we ultimately end up valuing with our hearts. And so when when Barnabas says this, he says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We do this with our minds. We grow in our pursuit and knowledge of God, but we also do this with our money. We give and we sacrifice to the things that God says have value. Because guys, listen, like hear me on this. Please hear me. If you spend your life using your money to tell your heart that the kingdom of God has little value, don't be surprised when you come to believe that. If you spend your life like with your money telling your heart the kingdom of God and the church and the things that Jesus cares about, those have little monetary value. Don't be surprised when you and your heart come to believe that. Okay, real quick. Um, I'm new on staff at this church, and I, and I just want to say this, okay? My, my salary, the way it works, um, it actually comes almost entirely from outside funding, okay? Like, Docs at Church pays, like, a really small part of my salary, like, a really small part. So this isn't, like, you can, you can hear me say this as someone who's not, like, he's trying to get more money from us, all right, Okay. You guys pay very little of my salary. It all comes from super generous people in other churches elsewhere that are saying, we want to reach Madison and we want to plant churches, okay? Hear me say this as a friend. Hear me say this as someone who, who, who wants you guys to love Jesus really well. The way you spend your money is going to determine your love for God and your love for the things of God. And some of you, some of you you're in the room and you've been, you're coming to Doxa, like this is a regular part of, of your week and you don't tithe. You don't give money to the church. Like, this is so interesting to me because tithing is like an Old Testament rule, right? It's an Old Testament command. Like, tithe, 10% of everything you make, give to God, right? The New Testament's interesting. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say give 10%. It actually, like, assumes that that is, like, the base level floor. Like, 10% is just, like, you just do that because that was an Old Testament rule, and that was before God incarnated himself into the world and died for us. And now he doesn't say, give 10%. He just says, you, Christian, knowing what I've done for you, knowing the ways I've been generous to you, you be generous. And so I just, I just want to say as a friend to you, and this affects my like, livelihood zero, okay? Give your money to the church. It will be one of the most like, fastest ways that you can train your heart to love the things of God. Be generous to like, people who are going on missions trips. Like, give them money. Sacrifice your treasure for the things that God cares about. Because when you do that, you are like, communicating to your heart, this is what has value. Because if you don't do that, your treasure will train your heart to love the world. And when you go and lease that new car and that's what you use your money to, to buy, 
your heart will say, this must be what is valuable. And when Jesus is on that narrow road calling you forward, your heart and your eyes are starting to be really attracted to things of this world. The way you use your money is unbelievably important. Okay, the last thing, and then we're gonna be done, okay? The way they go. Okay, this is so cool. I love this. This is, this is lighter, so you don't have to worry. Okay, this is a lighter part of the sermon, okay? Barnabas and Paul, okay, they come back from delivering this money, okay? They come back to, to the church in Jerusalem. They've been there, they come back, and as the church is kind of gathered together, they're kind of celebrating and talking, like, okay, we did this thing, it's so cool. Now these leaders are back. This is what it says in, in, I think, chapter 13, verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and, and they sent them out. And so I just want to really quickly just think about the movement and the going from one place to another that has happened to bring about this church. Right, because you've got these this people in Jerusalem, they're facing persecution, and so they, they leave, and they start going to all these different cities. And as they're going to these different cities, they're bringing the gospel with them. And they're just sharing the gospel in, in the, the marketplaces, in their jobs, in the places they are. They're going with the gospel into these new places, and they're sharing the gospel, and all of a sudden, this new church starts. And so the church in Jerusalem goes, we need to send some of our people there to bless them. And so Barnabas goes, and he gets there, and he goes, okay, I need to now pick my life up for a moment, go over here and get Saul. And so he gets Saul, and he brings Saul all the way from Tarsus, all the way back up to Antioch so that he can teach them. And then the church goes, okay, we need to bless this place over here with money. So we're going to send you guys over here with money. They finally get there, and then the church in Jerusalem goes, you need to go back there. And so they go all the way back here. And then as soon as they get back, they're all together as a family. It's awesome. They're praying together, and they're fasting. And the Holy Spirit says, go. There's more cities. There's, There's more people just like you who haven't heard the name of Jesus yet. And and I want you to actually uproot your lives again. And I want you to to go. And so he says specifically, Paul and Barnabas, I've set you apart to take this message to the ends of the earth. Guys, one of the things that marks Christians and one of the things that marks people who are on the narrow road of following Jesus is that we don't stop along the way and build our home here. This doesn't mean that Christians don't buy houses and don't move in the neighborhoods, okay? This doesn't mean that we don't enter into a culture and enter into a place and build our lives there. But it means that even as we buy houses and we start families and even as we dig deep into our communities and form really close bonds with our neighbors, we do this as people who are still on our journey to our final home. We are not home. Madison is not our home. Heaven is our home. Because this church is here because people uprooted their lives, they sold homes, and left relationships to come here. Some of you guys are actually Christians like because people made a sacrifice to come here. And as this church grows, there are going to be people that God will raise up and send out from this place to go and do the exact same thing somewhere else. And God's actually probably going to ask some of you to be those people. Because being a Christian means that we live this life as pilgrims. We never get to a point in our lives where we build our forever home, right? We don't do that. 
Because God is the one who's building our forever home, and it's in heaven. And what we do as Christians is we live in this world, and whether we're living in Madison or wherever we're living, everything that we have, we're holding with open hands. Like when we come together and we pray together, we're always saying, wherever you would send me, Lord, whether it's my neighbors, whether it's this this school system, or whether it's literally like the furthest reaches of the world, my yes is on the table because this isn't my home. I'm a pilgrim. I'm on my journey home. I'm on my way home. I'm not a Madisonite. I'm a Christian. My home is heaven. And so, guys, remain faithful, Lord, with steadfast purpose. That, that's the call that God has for us. And I really do think that, guys, these three things, guys, the way we gather, the way we grow, we, we pursue knowledge of God, we pursue him. Guys, the way we use our money, and even the way we think about things like our home, our, our, our lives, our livelihoods, our houses, even the ways that we think of those things, those things are shaping us. There is a way to use all of that with a steadfast purpose, not as people who get distracted on this path and just kind of all of a sudden land here and say, this is now my home. I've made it. I'm here. No, this is what I want to put my money towards. This is what I want. No, I want to be focused on this thing and learn everything about this thing. No, we are people who set our eyes on the horizon. To that final sunrise, that dawning, that day when Jesus Christ himself will once again reappear and we will see him. Would you guys join me in just praying that we would be those kind of people at Doxa? Jesus, we've chosen to follow you. And Jesus, that isn't just a decision that we've made, but it's a commitment that we want to keep. That as you continue walking, all of us leading us towards home, leading us towards heaven, leading us towards your Father that one day we're going to see face to face, God, would you help us to remain faithful with steadfast purpose? God, would you help us use our minds that as much as we study textbooks or as much as we study schematics for a building project, as much as we study things in this world, God, would we use our minds, our intellects to study and know who you are. And God, the money, the things you've blessed us with. God, would you give us a vision to use that to bless the people around us, to use that for the things that you care about. God, would you, you put our treasure on the things that you value so that our heart would go there too. And Jesus, even with things like our futures, where we live, where we're building our home, Jesus, I just pray that you would, in gracious, amazing ways, God, would you just call us further, further on this path, further down the road as we say, heaven is our home. We belong to Jesus. We wanna go where he's going. God, would you just even right now just help us know which of these things you want to kind of put your finger on and say, I want to talk to you about this. If you want to remain faithful, you want to have steadfast purpose in your life, we got to talk about this. So Jesus, would you speak to us this morning and would you help us worship you?